Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. Air Force A-10 Warthog pilot, Colonel Kim Casey Campbell is here. It's going to be an amazing show. She has a wonderful life story and many, many lessons to pass on, and so I cannot wait to get to that. Before we get started, a couple things. First of all, we just completed a cycle of the Social Flights Fly to Win Challenge, where we gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. And I am especially excited to announce that we're now entering our holiday season part of our Social Flight Fly to Win Challenge. And tonight's show, and that is also brought to you by Lightspeed. And it's brought to you by the new Delta Zulu headset, which we will be giving away on December 1st. The Delta Zulu headset is the safety wearable headset with the built-in canary carbon monoxide detection and customized hearing acuity, uh, which just maps everything. For those of us that have um, any kind of like hearing deficiencies or just to your preferences and what works for you in the cockpit, the ability to completely customize the way that the EQ works and the ANR works for your headset is truly revolutionary, as is the carbon monoxide detection. And I will tell you, I have flown with this headset. It's fantastic. And it even discovered a carbon monoxide leak in the Bonanza that we fly. And there's an article in AOPA about that. It's uh, really, really was amazing to see that happen. So uh, great stuff, has tons more features than I can actually even go into now. So check it out on the Lightspeed headset uh, website. Just go out to Lightspeed, check all of that out. And if you do not want to just put everything up for risk as to whether or not you're going to be the winner there for the holiday season, well, they've got something else going on. And until October 9th, uh, they are celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Delta Zulu headset and the 10,000th headset to go out there and uh, help over 10,000 pilots now with their safety. In that celebration, they're offering $100 off. Go out to the website, check all that out at lightspeedaviation.com. Now to tonight's show. I am so, so excited for this. Kim Casey, AKA call sign Killer Chick Campbell, is a retired colonel who has served in the Air Force for over 24 years as a fighter pilot and a senior military leader. She has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog, including more than 100 combat missions, protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2003, Kim was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for Heroism after successfully recovering her battle-damaged aircraft following an intense close-air support mission during which she was hit by a surface-to-air missile. As a senior military leader, Kim has led hundreds of airmen, both at home and abroad, enabling them to succeed in their missions. Her new book, which I'll bring up here right now for you to see, Flying in the Face of Fear, takes her experiences as a fighter pilot and a commander and teaches how we can all lead with courage, 
and competent humility, which is a phrase I absolutely love. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live as I bring her on the line and now, Casey Campbell. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. How are you doing tonight, Casey? I'm doing great. Uh, great day, beautiful day in Colorado. The leaves are changing and it's just, uh, it makes for a good day, that's for sure. Well, let me start by thanking you so much for coming on the show to to tell your story and pass along some of those things. And and again, uh, uh, your book is is wonderful. I found it uh, just a, your story, your life story, inspirational, and all the lessons that you pass along the way. Uh, I think really can apply to just about anyone. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, the you know the book was a bit of a passion project. I never thought that I would be an author. It wasn't on my list of things to do, and it just kind of stumbled into it, if you will, got pushed into it a little bit, maybe from a coworker from the Air Force Academy. Um, but I realized throughout my career, throughout my career as a pilot and as a leader, how important those stories were that people shared with me and how at some of the toughest moments of my life, I remembered those stories. I remembered the lessons. And so this idea of sharing war stories and hangar stories really to help other people and help them learn from them was something that was really important to me. Yeah, and and your story starts, I think, kind of interestingly because it seems like there was this pivotal moment in your life where the idea of going to the academy seemed to change everything. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, and it started a long time ago. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, uh, 10 years old, I'll date myself by saying that was 1986, um, I was watching the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And I think for me, there was something just in that moment with the launch that was just exciting and thrilling and this exhilaration of flight. Like there's something that I was just really connected with. And then watching the tragedy play out in front of us, I think, you know, there was also something in that moment that I realized that the astronauts died doing something that they believed in, something that was big and important that was bigger than themselves. And you know, thankfully, I had some pretty supportive parents around at the time, and in talking through it, realized that that's what I wanted to do. I decided right then and there that I wanted to be an astronaut someday. Uh, my dad had been in the Air Force, had gone to the Air Force Academy, and so he said, well, some of those astronauts uh, were pilots, and a lot of the pilots came out of the Air Force Academy. I don't think he actually thought that I would commit to that goal and that dream, um, but I did. I decided I was going to the Air Force Academy. I was going to become a fighter pilot and then ideally one day go on to become an astronaut. And uh, that flipped a switch for me. I mean, I became very committed in school. My parents never had to ask me to do homework again. I was already participating in a lot of extracurricular activities, but I joined the Civil Air Patrol. I started flying. It was just this really life-changing, pivotal moment from launch, watching the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. I find it, it fascinating that at such a young age, you could have that that one moment where everything changes and you describe the uh, entire mission of your life and the way, how seriously you decide to take everything is just changing in that moment. There's there's a story I'd like you to pass along that you do talk about in the book uh, where you ran a foot race, that uh, a cross-country race that essentially changed the way you're your father viewed your uh, your pursuit of the academy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, 
So, I mean, keep in mind, when I decided that I was going to go to the Air Force Academy and become a fighter pilot, this was 1986, women weren't allowed to fly fighters yet. They were not allowed to fly in combat. And, you know, my parents never told me that. They just told me to work hard, go after what I wanted. And once my dad saw that I was really committed to going to the academy, he was like, all right, I think I'll, I'll you know, try to encourage this and support it in it whatever way I can. But he kind of wondered if I was... I guess had the grit and you know the mental toughness to go through some of the hard things. My dad had been there when there were no women, so he knew it was going to be hard. And one of the things obviously was sports. I, you know, I knew I had to be active in sports and I enjoyed running, so I was a cross country runner in high school. And the start of a cross country race is pretty exciting. You're all gathered in, smashed in at the start and then the you know the the gun sounds and you're, everybody's vying for their spot out front. And uh, our races were done in the hills in California and San Jose where I grew up. And the, the trails would narrow pretty good. So you knew you had to get out fast, get in front to get your spot on the trail. But in that pack of runners, someone stepped on the back of my shoe. And I had this split second moment of like, should I stop? Or what do I, you know, should I keep going? What do I do? And I think in that split second, I was like, well, if I stop, it's going to take me a long time. I'm going to be in the back. So I was like, well, I'm just going to keep running. And so I did. I decided to run the entire race without a shoe on. When the runners cleared, of course, now the coaches are standing around and there's this shoe like in the middle and everybody's kind of looking around. And my coach just was like, oh, I know it's Kim's shoe. That has to be Kim's shoe. Uh, and I ran the whole race, maybe not the best idea that by the end. I mean, I had pretty good bloody blisters on the bottom of my foot. Uh, I didn't win the race, but I did. I just still did actually pretty well. And I think really the important thing that came out of that, my dad was like, oh, wait a second. She does have this mental toughness and grit. Like if she can push through hard things, like this is a turning point in his mind. It kind of flipped his mindset of what I was capable of doing and being able to get through challenging situations. So from that point on, I kind of got opened up to this world of the military that he had experienced. And uh, it was great because he was now my biggest supporter and my, you know, my role model and my hero. He's been that way my entire life. And so to have his support uh, on a positive and also really pushing me to do well and knowing the things that I needed to do to be ready was really important. Wow. Uh, I will, I'll confess that one of the true joys of running this show is uh, getting to learn from amazing individuals like yourself and some of the things that happen throughout their lives that, that some of the lessons are about perseverance against many odds. And one of the things that I think is also really important is that you didn't initially get in to the academy. Like there was this buildup like it yeah. was just going to go your way and then and then didn't tell us about what what that meant cuz that in itself i think tells a lot about what the rest of your life was going to be like yeah that was a pivotal moment for many reasons i think you know i put everything i had into going to the academy like i did everything at school that i needed to i you know i worked hard i got good grades i participated in all these extracurricular activities i played sports i was in civil air patrol i had soloed an airplane like i had done all of these things like i felt very competitive now granted there was this tugging thing at the back of my mind that i knew my sat scores weren't spectacular but i was hoping they would be good enough um, and so my, I really had my heart set on it. I would not have applied to any other schools, but my parents made me. 
uh, apply to some backup schools, uh, but the academy was it for me. And I would go to the mailbox every day, just waiting for that letter. And I remember going to the mailbox, opening it up, there's the, you know, the bright blue AF, super exciting. I should have known it was a smaller letter, um, but it said, essentially, thanks for applying, but it's very competitive and uh, you didn't make the cut, you know, is, is really what it came down to. And that was in April of my senior year. And I was just, I was devastated. I was crushed. Like, this is everything that I worked for. Like, I put so much into it. And to see that re rejection, like, in print um, was really tough. And thankfully, I had people around me, you know, between coaches and parents and mentors, my liaison officer, and everyone was so supportive in that moment. Um, but my liaison officer said, you know, Kim, if this is what you want, then keep pushing on it, you know, keep after it. And he said, you might consider writing them a letter. So I decided to write not just one letter, but uh, a letter every week to the admissions office, telling them if that week I could do five more push-ups, I let them know. If I got an A on a test, I let them know. I eventually took the ACT, did much better on that, uh, and let them know that as well. But I told them that I was interested in going. If somebody turned down their slot, I would take it. I got to the point where I was ready to show up on the day where everybody shows up for basic training and I thought well someone's going to change their mind so if I show up and I'm there then they have to take me thankfully I didn't get to that I got my acceptance letter about two weeks before basic training started and joined the class of 1997 to go on to the Air Force Academy but there's something about rejection right I think there's something about being rejected and then feeling a little bit like you want to prove yourself and so I decided I'm not just going to survive at the academy i am going to thrive i'm going to prove to them that i belonged and i went on to graduate number one in my class in the military order of merit and then led the uh, entire cadet wing as the cadet wing commander and i really think that rejection letter was the turning point for me it was this moment of like i'm going to do well i'm going to show them that i belong here and i'm that i can excel despite my sat scores <laughs> I love that, and and I love that you know they don't tell you that that's an option, right? They don't tell that the the you've been you rejected or you're not accepted mm -hmm. is uh, is a final letter. It's not a hey keep sending us messages. And yeah, so... <laughs> I I've shared that story since then quite a bit, and I think a few more candidates have taken that up. So uh, I've heard a few more stories since then, but uh, I did make friends with the admissions office afterwards. They actually wanted to meet me. They were kind of like, all right, you sent us a letter every week. We got to meet this cadet uh, once I made my way through basic training. And I went up to the admissions office and it turns out they kept every letter. Now keep in mind, like these were handwritten letters. These, these were not today emails. These were handwritten letters. And so they'd get them in the mail. They'd put a little smiley face on it and leave it on the admissions officer's desk. So have to think it would make a difference. I don't know. That's that's absolutely wonderful. I I, I totally love it. And uh, you do a lot to to explain the process of what's really involved in the academy and and going through it. And I think it's interesting that it's in terms that I think respect the process. It's not just hey here's some hazing or here's some other things that are really difficult. It's really about understanding what it does and who it takes in in the beginning and and the type of, of officer that it outputs at the end. Yeah, I think we, you know, we all come in as individuals, high-performing individuals. I mean, if you look around at the academy, there are valedictorians and 
team captains and, and you name it. I mean, people have done it. And so all of a sudden you show up and you feel pretty average uh, compared to everybody that's there. A lot of, you know, the idea is we come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, different upbringings. And the intent is you, you bring everybody together and, and you teach them how to perform as a team that you cannot survive unless you perform as a team. And we're introduced very early on to this idea, this wingman concept that you never leave a wingman behind. You know, you're always working together and supporting each other. Um, and that really just was instilled in us very early on that if you are going to succeed, you are going to work together. You're going to get through hard things together. We're going to put you in very challenging situations and you are not going to survive unless you get through with the team. Well, as someone graduating top of their class, you have options in terms of what you're going to wind up doing and that that follows you anytime i guess that you're at the top of your class throughout your career and you chose the a10 that's one of the things we're going to talk about of course tonight tell me about what it is about the a10 that that made that the right aircraft for you for me it came down to the mission and you know i i tell young pilots now um, going through their training that one, you absolutely have to work hard because you want to be at the top of your class so that it will put you in a position to have a choice and to have a choice about your future and your career. Um, I saw that at the Air Force Academy getting the pilot slot and then I saw that in pilot training, really working hard to be in a position to choose the airplane that I wanted. And you know, again, this is um, 1999, it's pre 9-11 and the A-10 wasn't this, um, you know, there wasn't a very busy airframe, if you will. You know, we, we were performing missions, but it wasn't, you know, the A-10 is not your sleek, sexy fighter. It's a, you know, it's a workhorse. It's a beast. And uh, there are a lot of people that were like, you want to fly the A-10? Like, why wouldn't you choose the F-15? <laughs> Go fly air to air. And I'm like, no, you know, I love the low level missions and pilot training. I absolutely love them. And after I started talking to pilots and it, they were explaining this mission of close air support to me, and I thought, you know, that's a mission I can get behind of being able to support our troops on the ground, helping them get home safely. That was just something that resonated with me. And so I chose the mission. Um, I chose the mission and, and then I absolutely love the airplane. You know, I think for me that that's it. Um, and, you know, and then 9-11 happened and changed the world as we know it. And, and you know, now the A-10 has been flying in combat and doing our mission every day, you know, for the past 20 years until, until very recently. So uh, for me, it was all about the mission. I just love the mission of close air support. And, you know, and oh, by the way, the A-10 is an incredible airplane to fly. It's a ton of fun. Uh, and I, I absolutely loved it. There's, there seems to be a, a, a message of teamwork that's part of that, that kind of carries over from, from your academy days and the things that you were thinking about through there that has to do with connecting yeah. with the people you're serving and protecting on the ground that you can't see in some of the you know faster sexier aircraft that are out there and and, and fly from much higher altitudes i think there's something about an a-10 pilot and the bond that we have with our ground troops i mean we train with them um, we know their terminology their schemes of maneuver we learn it um, we are often deployed with them. I mean, in Afghanistan, we shared the base at Bagram Air Base with many of our ground troops, with many of the special forces troops that we supported. And there's something there that is just this connection of like, 
we're there for them. You know, we're um, we're essentially infantry in the sky, right? We we get it, we understand it. It is our bread and butter. We train to it. We understand how important it is. It's a commitment that we have to be there for them when they need it. And so I think, yeah, there is something about that. It's that team concept. And yeah, we fly with a wingman. We always have a wingman with us, but we also have this um, a, a greater team of the troops on the ground that we're supporting as well. Yeah, and and the idea that ground troops know the sound of an A-10, know it's coming, know what it means to them and and their their livelihood, their safety. Um, yeah, it's I've heard from so many ground troops since my time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and just when they could hear an A-10 overhead and know that we were there, I mean, it it really made a difference. And I think even if we weren't employing weapons, just being overhead and hearing the noise of an A-10 just provided that reassurance. And so that just, it was a reinforcing, like it reminded me of like my why, like my reason of, of why I chose the A-10 was to be there overhead. Even if sometimes we felt maybe like we weren't doing anything, hearing later from the ground troops, they were just, you know, so reassured to know that we were there, that we were watching the road in front of them, you know, providing that convoy escort, whatever it was, um, to be there for them, to be there in really tough times and really challenging times. And so that was just, I lo absolutely love the mission. I, I found a lot of purpose in it and it really became my passion for 20 years. I did, you know, 20 plus years of flying the A-10. I didn't, I didn't ever think I would stay that long or keep flying the airplane that long, but it was hard to walk away. Yeah, and I think even when there isn't action, right, the reason there isn't action is because of your presence. Yeah, I mean, and it, it sometimes it gives you like an opportunity to take that step back. And, you know, we, there are times where we're like, gosh, we just feel like we're turning holes in the sky, like we're just, you know, circling overhead, looking at different points, and there's nothing there. And we're just, you know, it can be, I'll be honest, it was, there were times where it felt frustrating, like, are we doing anything? Are we making a difference? Um, and then we... we later hear stories of these like potential ambushes or things that you know it it um it would it made a difference because we were there you know things didn't happen because we were there right um i'm going to show a few uh, images so people can actually see the the aircraft itself let's talk about the the a10 i have to say it is one of my absolute favorite aircraft it is just in its rugged simplicity and power and resilience. Um, take us through the aircraft a little bit. Yeah, so you can see in that picture there, um, or a couple pictures. So the airplane was built around the Gatling gun. It was designed with this idea of close air support in mind as its primary mission. And so uh, they built the airplane around a gun that was intended to be the primary weapon for close air support missions. It's incredibly precise very accurate. And so the airplane is built around the gun. If you look at the front of the airplane, it, the airplane itself, like the nose gear is slightly off center to make space for the gun. Uh, so this, so this, it's, this, is, this is the gun to show people what we're talking about here. It's what, like 19 feet long or 11 feet 19 long? Feet, 19 foot long, 30 millimeter Gatling gun. Um, it, it's, an, it's incredible in terms of how precise it is, how accurate it is. And um, the the jet is centered on the gun and so that we it's a point and shoot weapon it makes it very accurate um, the airplane itself was built with a lot of redundancies with manual backups um, for protection against enemy fire so 
probably most loved by the pilots is the titanium bathtub that surrounds the cockpit for protection against enemy fire. And then all of our fuel tanks are enclosed in protective foam lining to prevent fire uh, after battle damage. And then probably near and dear to my heart is that all the flight control systems are built with these manual and redundant backup systems. Um, so it's an impressive airplane. I mean, it was designed to take hits while performing its mission. It was designed to get down low and support our troops on the ground. And, and it's been incredibly reliable and durable over the years. For, for anyone that, that hasn't really researched it, it really is worth going out there and getting getting deep in, in the design of the aircraft because most aircraft start really around an, an engine. Usually they will say, most aircraft designers will say, it's all about the engine and the, the aircraft's almost built around it based on what mission they're, they're trying to accomplish and everything builds from that point. But the idea that this is built around a gun, that that is literally the first piece of the puzzle laid in and everything else was built around it is fascinating. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an impressive airplane. I mean, and because you essentially are sitting on top of the gun um, when you fire the gun on the A-10. I mean, the whole thing is spinning and moving underneath you, so you can feel it. I mean, the whole jet shakes, and you can you can smell the gun gases. You can see them out in front of you. I mean, it's just it's a full experience when you pull that trigger. It's just um, it, it's kind of overwhelming the first time. You're like, wow, it, it's like takes you off guard a little bit because it's so loud. It's it's you know just very like. Uh, violent would be the best word that I can describe. It's just not what you expect to to happen. And then to see the bullets impact the target, at least that's feedback that you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but it's a it's a full experience. And you're not really an A-10 pilot until you shoot the gun anyway. <laughs> do, you, do you remember the first time that you shot the gun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember... Uh, I remember my first time shooting the gun, and I also remember going back as an instructor in the airplane, taking students out to the range for their first time to shoot the gun. Honestly, that was almost more exciting because every time you know you you explain it, you walk through it, you talk about it in detail, and then no matter what, they're still surprised, they're still caught off guard, they're still super excited. Uh, and then to be able after they land to put the A10 patch on their shoulder is like it's pretty cool. Wow. I I learned something else uh, uh, in your uh, in your book, and that is I did not realize that your call sign isn't really a permanent one that's assigned until your first actual combat tour. I, I, yeah, I thought it was once renamed. forever. I didn't realize that. Yeah, you can be renamed um, at at any point really until <laughs> until you fly in combat. And then the call sign is with you for life is kind of the rule. Uh, you know, rules are, I guess, in, in call signs can be flexible and adjusted. But in general, uh, you get named uh, as soon as you're deemed combat mission ready. And then once you fly in combat, then the, the call sign is with you. So for me, uh, my call sign and my naming happened very early in my career. You know, you show up, you go through your combat mission ready checkout. We happened to to deploy very quickly after I showed up. So uh, my call sign has been with me for quite some time. <laughs> that's, that, and I love that there's always stories behind that. So that's, that's, that's really something. Um, obviously, the, the thing that, that you are most known for was your experience over there in combat uh, when the aircraft was hit, when you were supporting troops. Can you take us through 
what actually happened on that day? Yeah, because it was a day like every day, you know, that's, that's, that's how most flying is, you know, things go normal until they don't. Um, and this was back April 7th, 2003. Our primary mission at that point was supporting troops on the ground as they were moving towards Baghdad. Uh, by then, our ground troops had really surrounded Baghdad, and they were having us, we would take off from Kuwait, fly up to Baghdad, we'd air refuel, and then just wait for a tasking. And I remember that day, the weather was terrible. Uh, we couldn't see the ground below. Uh, we had trouble finding the tanker, and we eventually got gas uh, completely full. And then, uh, and I remember my flight lead saying, like, I hope you have your lucky rabbit's foot with you today because it's going to be a rough one. Just really alluding to the weather, and it was a tough scenario. Um, and then we got the call that our troops on the ground were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance, and we were going to go do everything to support them. Uh, and you know, it just, it was one of those moments. You know, you have to plan for contingencies. So I'm going to plan for contingencies right now because my charger cord is not working. And I have a backup. <laughs> like the A10. I have a backup charger cord because I've had this problem before with this laptop. All right, we're good. We're plugged in. Backup. In effect, no worries. I think. Let me just give it one second before I get into the exciting part here. All right, we're good. Perfect. The true story behind this, I'll, de I'll deviate for one second, is I have a teenager at home. He also <laughs> has a laptop that has a charger, and he likes to steal ours that actually goes with our laptop, and then we have his from school. So it doesn't always work. All right, back to the story. Uh, so it's April 7th, 2003. We're over Baghdad. The, the weather's terrible. We're trying to figure out from there just, you know, what's going to happen. And we get the call. We get the call. Ground troops are taking fire. They need immediate assistance. And, you know, at this point, like, we're going to do everything we can. But we have to be able to get below the weather. Uh, they tell us that our troops are on the west side of the Tigris River. They're hunkered down, awaiting resupply. And the enemy is on the east side of the Tigris River, firing rocket-propelled grenades uh, into our troops. And so we know very quickly, it's troops in contact, we need to get in there as fast as we can. I remember my flight lead just said, all right, we're gonna go right over to the target area, we're gonna look for a hole in the clouds, wedge shooters guns, which is our formation, we're gonna use the gun, we're gonna get in there quickly. And the target we were given was underneath a bridge where the enemy was hiding. So I, I remember us being right over the top of the target area and I look over at my flight lead and he just kind of rolls inverted and just, disappears through the weather. And I'm like, okay, now I'm up here by myself. I remember looking down, I could see this small hole in the clouds and I thought this is my opportunity and I just dove through the clouds. As soon as I got down below the weather, I could instantly see this firefight. I mean, there were bright flashes and smoke and tracers. I mean, it was it's very surreal. I mean, it was just, you could see this firefight happening. We are now so low uh, that I could see the firefight happening below me. And it's that second of realization that this is like everything that we train for. It's everything that we plan for. And then suddenly there's like these little puffs of gray and white smoke and bright flashes in the air. This moment of like, this is, this is not quite what we had planned, but you know, we got to get in there very quickly. We have a mission to do and we, very quickly, my flight lead rolled in, and uh, 
his first pass was not effective. They told him to come back around. Uh, we did a couple passes of gun and rockets. And then I remember just setting up for my last rocket pass. We had decided like two passes, that's enough. We're, you know, we're getting shot at. There's a lot going on. We'll do a couple passes and we'll reassess. And I roll in, I point my nose right under the bridge. I hit the weapons release buttons. And I pull off target, pull away from the ground, just trying to get away from the threat. And then this huge explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew immediately I was hit. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. It dumped the airplane nose over. I remember seeing Baghdad below. It's you know now getting closer. I instinctively just pull back on the control stick and nothing happened. I mean, absolutely nothing. And, you know, it's that moment of like, now what? You know, it's things of time has now slowed down. And I realize I have to go fall back on my training. I quickly try to analyze the situation. I cannot maintain control of the airplane. So I'm now on to analyze the situation. I realize I've got this master caution light fat flashing. I, my whole caution panel is just lit up like a Christmas tree. And I look up at the top where our hydraulic lights are and I see left and right side, both the pressure and reservoir all lights are on. I look up at the gauges and my hydraulics are at zero. And uh, at this point, I, I look down at the ejection handles because I'm not sure what's going to happen next. And I remember thinking like, this is about the last thing I want to do is potentially eject and then float down into the hands of the enemy. And so I knew it was like, you know, the clock is ticking. I have to make every second count. And I just, you know, kind of set aside all the the fear that was going on, all the all the negative thoughts that were going on and really focused on taking action and engage the backup emergency system. And thankfully the jet just started climbing up and away from Baghdad. And that was the first moment I was like, all right, I might actually survive this one. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. then I had, and then I had the long trip home. So, <laughs> and then I now had to the, go from there. The aircraft itself has a, uh, has a backup for that. And my understanding is it's not, something that had been tried very successfully that many times to use that. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the A-10 has a backup emergency system called manual reversion. It is simply cranks, cables, and pulleys that allow you to fly the aircraft without hydraulics, kind of that backup manual mechanical mode. Uh, I guess I equate it in my mind to like old school flying. Yeah, um, and using I know, I know there are other airplanes with it, but in, in the A-10 and in fighters, uh, you know, it's, it's unique. And for us, we train once in manual reversion. So we'll actually go up in one of our early sorties um, in training and we'll flip the switch and put the jet into this backup system just to get a feel for how it responds. It's very heavy and hard to fly in the backup mode. So you fly for a couple minutes, you flip the switch back and go, okay, I hope that never happens to me. Like, that should never happen, right? <laughs> and uh, it's not really intended to land in manual reversion. In fact, our checklist for manual reversion landings actually says attempt under ideal conditions, which I don't know how you lose all of your hydraulics and it ever be ideal, but that's what the checklist says. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I knew I had this decision to make now because here I am in manual reversion. I'm over downtown Baghdad. Uh, I know I have significant damage to the airplane. And at this point, my priority is get out of Baghdad because I still think I might have to eject. Um, but once I get out of Baghdad, I realize I have this decision looming. You know, do I get the jet back to friendly territory, which is 
300 miles, about an hour of flight time in the A-10, and do I get it back and just eject, or do I fly it back and attempt to land? Uh, probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. Wow. And what was that landing like when you made it back? Um, it's the best one I've ever done, right? Because <laughs> I could walk away from it. Um, you know, I made the decision to land because I had an hour to fly the airplane. I really, after that hour, felt very comfortable. I did a controllability check. I, you know, I, we eventually got the gear down, uh, another backup emergency system. We got the gear down, um, you know, and I just felt flying the airplane in the configured mode, ready to land, that I could, that I could put it on the ground safely. Um, I knew there was still some risk involved, but we also have a zero zero ejection seat, so I could I knew that I had the possibility that I could also eject at the last second. Um, but you know, coming into land, everything felt really good um, until right until I got into the kind of the ground effect right over the underrun, and it felt like the airplane was going to flip over on its back, and it just um, it was kind of that heart stopping moment of is the airplane going to flip over on its back? Do I have time to eject and you know, at the same time, those thoughts are going through me, through my mind. I yanked the stick back, and thankfully, the airplane leveled out. And uh, I did a very what I'll call a Navy uh, power-on carrier-type landing, uh, just to make sure I could fly that thing in as smooth as I could. And and there's no steering, right, in that mode. Yeah, there's no at this point. The hydraulics are gone. I've got a an emergency braking system, so five brake applications, and then no steering at all. Uh, so just trying to keep everything centered up on the runway, and uh, and eventually brought the jet to a stop. And I've yet to determine the word to describe the feeling of relief because relief doesn't feel big enough. It was like immense and utter relief of just being on the ground, knowing that I had made it, that I had survived, and. Um, and then to hear all the guys in my squadron over the radio, you know, we talk about radio discipline and the fighter community, but like the word went out, you know, and all these pilots had come in to watch my landing and to hear them over the radio standing by in the control tower and, and in their airplanes and to hear their words, just welcoming me home, welcoming me home and telling me that I had done a nice job with the landing. Like that moment to me, it just means like. I don't know. It was just such a reassuring moment of like being part of a team and and knowing that my brothers and my sisters were out there, you know, watching and supporting me in that in that time. It was just to this day I remember that moment more than anything. Well, I think the other part you talk about with that story that I find very impactful is how the your flight lead was able to help you uh through that moment and through the way back and and how how much that really means as as a wingman what that really means as a team oh for sure i mean i i look back to that and one it was a defining for me in terms of like what a good wingman can be and like in that moment when everything is going wrong i mean i was at the time i was just overwhelmed by trying to get the airplane under control like my situational awareness bubble was like right here in front of me in my cockpit and not much else around it um but he immediately you know i i keyed the radio i told him that i was hit and immediately he was on the radio very directive in a way that i could understand telling me to put out more chaff and flare which is from our countermeasure system so that you know they're still shooting at us so he doesn't want me to hit, get hit again so he's telling me that, and then when I explain to him that I'm having trouble climbing and maneuvering, 
he's immediately telling me to get west. Well, west is where the friendlies are. So he's already thinking about if I have to eject, then ideally I can float down over the friendly location, not the enemy location. Uh, so he's telling me to move west. And as soon as I tell him that I'm in manual reversion, this emergency backup system, like he immediately understands the severity of the situation. He knows how intense this moment is. And so he tells me to emergency jettison all of the ordnance off the airplane because I'm struggling to climb. Uh, and once I do that, I'm able to get greater control of the airplane. I'm able to climb um, and start making my way up and uh, out of Baghdad. But, you know, that moment in, you know, those were, that's like a matter of 20 seconds. And he's doing all of these things and very, re, you know, he's being very reactive and directive in a way that I need to hear. You know, I'm very focused on flying the airplane, but I can at least hear him telling me these directive things. And then to be by my side the whole way back. I mean, that whole way back is just, um, you know, he's reading checklists to me. He is talking me through difficult things. You know, he's also just checking in, like, how are you doing? How are things going? You know, it's a long hour, like probably the longest hour of my life to think about potentially crashing. And so to have a wingman by your side that is like, I can see him, you know, he's not in the airplane with me, but he's real close and I can see him. And you know, he's looking over the airplane, he's watching me, he's asking questions. And to have that mutual support was absolutely critical. And it's just, you know, I, I, you know, I was a young wingman when this happened. So for me to see that example and to see it from him taught me a lot about how to be a flight lead later on and the things that I wanted to teach as an instructor. Um, to have that example so early in my career, I'm, I'm very thankful, you know, that I got to see something like that and know what a good wingman is. Yeah. I'm going to show a couple of pictures for people to see what uh, they actually were dealing with for these uh, Iraqi SA-2s that actually hit you and then how much damage was done to the aircraft when you landed and had a chance to to look at the aircraft. I think it was in, impressive to everyone around. Yeah, I was pretty shocked actually. Like I got out of the airplane and uh I couldn't see any of the damage flying home. Like I had, we have mirrors in our cockpit and I kept trying to look behind me, but I couldn't see any of it. And so I just, you know, I, as soon as I got the airplane stopped, I, you know, I hopped out and, you know, there's fire trucks everywhere. They're a bunch of actually Marine firefighters and, you know, they're kind of looking at me and they're looking at the airplane. And, and I'm like, you know, at this point, I'm like, what, like, what is it? And so I go to the back of the airplane. I mean, there's holes everywhere. It's dripping with hydraulic fluid. The whole backside of the airplane, which you can see a little bit in that picture there, the back tail is actually charred. It's covered with hydraulic fluid, but you know, clearly a fire happened likely when the missile impacted. And it just, you know, it, it was soft to the touch. Like it, the skin of the airplane is soft to the touch. And you know, there's a huge hole in the horizontal stabilizer, uh, which you can't see in that picture is both the, the tail, which is now you can see the honeycomb, the underside of the airplane that you're not supposed to see, uh, the tail and the, um, uh, also the right engine had taken pretty significant shrapnel damage. So kind of looking at it thinking like, it's a pretty impressive airplane, right? That it can take that damage and still keep flying. Yeah, it is, it, it is amazing um, uh, with, with that. Of course, this is uh, you with the aircraft, I assume in better days. <laughs> Yes, that picture is actually from my final flight in the A-10. Uh, that was my Finney flight. And um, my squadron actually surprised me. So uh, I walked out to the jet on my final flight and they had made the ladder door art uh, for that day, for that mission. 
so it was pretty cool to see that they had they had taken the time to paint that and put it up on the airplane and then it was my farewell gift. I actually have it sitting here in the office. It's heavy, so I can't hang it on the wall, but uh, it was a farewell gift for my final flight in the A-10. So pretty awesome, uh, pretty awesome squadron. And this is the 75th? Yeah, so this is my very first fighter squadron. So we kind of go to the last and to the first. Um, the 75th fighter squadron was the squadron that I deployed with in March of 2003 also. Uh, and earlier in 2002 to Afghanistan, but this picture is from Iraq, and uh, we were we were at um, Al Jaber Air Base in Kuwait initially, uh, and so this is my first fighter squadron. And there's something about the 75th that has just got special meaning for me. Uh, I have uh, a special place in my heart for A-10s with shark teeth on them. Uh, <laughs> you know that that history goes back to World War II and the Flying Tigers, and uh, it's. Once you fly an airplane with shark's teeth, it's really hard to like walk out to an airplane and not see that anymore. So um, what an incredible squadron. I mean, the squadron, you know, my first squadron, I remember walking in on day one and I was nervous, like any new pilot, right? I was nervous. I, I wanted to do well. I knew I was going to be the only female in the squadron when I first arrived. And I put a lot of pressure on myself because I, I didn't want to make mistakes or you know, fail, which is inevitable, you're going to make mistakes, right? But I, I put a lot of pressure on myself because in my mind, I felt like if I made mistakes or fail that, you know, I could ruin it for all the women that came behind me, which, you know, it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Uh, mm. But the good news of that pressure was that I worked really hard and I, I knew that I needed to be credible and capable in the airplane. And, you know, it turns out that those guys in my squadron, they were my brothers, they looked out for me, you know, they didn't care. They just cared that I was credible and capable in the airplane. You know, that's what made the difference. Yeah. And that is my flight lead. So that is Lieutenant Colonel Rick Turner. Uh, I flew with him as we were combat paired in Iraq. And uh, the way we would do it is we would have a young wingman, so an inexperienced wingman paired with a more experienced instructor. Uh, so we got combat paired and uh, we, we had flown several missions together before our April 7th mission. But, uh, you know, his his performance as a flight lead, as my wingman that day, I mean, I, I really think he saved my life. I think that he helped me get back safely. He, you know, gave me the courage, the confidence that I needed in that moment to be able to take action and get home. So uh, he really set the example of what a good wingman and what a good flight lead could be. Wow. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned, of course, how hazy and, and difficult it can be out there on deployment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that picture. So that was right after the um, our our big squadron picture, and you could just see this dust storm coming. Like it was, you could see like the yellow on the horizon, and that's I mean, that's what it looks like when those dust storms come in. And uh, you know, it just you're wearing like ski goggles to keep the the sand out of your eyes, but in reality, it's like it's everywhere. That dust, the sand, it's just fine, and it just gets everywhere. Um, our maintenance, our maintenance officers uh, and our crew chiefs joked that the sand was actually good for the A-10. It said that it would like clean out the engines. I have no <laughs> idea if that's true, but our airplanes, amazingly, like when you're deployed, they work so well. Like they're, you know, we don't have the problems that we do at home. So we joke that it's the sand, but <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't miss that. That is for sure. Um, you went on to do a, a lot of uh, training and, and commanding uh, uh, throughout the remainder of your career before you retired. Some of what you talk about, I think, seems to be very applicable to even general aviation pilots of flying at night and some of the risks of that and night vision goggles. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I've had some of my scariest moments, I think, um, outside of the Iraq mission, but flying at night, night vision goggles, you know, weather, it, it all contributes. And, you know, no matter how good you are in the airplane, no matter how experienced you are, there are just some of those factors all come together and can be dangerous. And um, I remember one night flying in Afghanistan, it was so dark. <laughs> and and then there was, you know, there was weather as well. And we're rejoining with the tanker, I get gas and I, we learned to refuel with our night vision goggles on, um, which was helping us when it was so that dark. But I went to move away from the tanker and somehow with, I, you know, to this day, I don't quite understand, but the lights of the tanker, the clouds, it just, and the just becoming so disoriented in that one moment I just couldn't figure out how to get away from the tanker. Like I knew that I was disoriented. I knew that I just needed to get away from everyone because obviously crashing into the tanker is not going to be good for anyone. Um, and I just, I couldn't physically figure out how to physically and mentally get away from the tanker. And I ended up doing this giant barrel roll around the tanker all in this time of like trying to fall back on that, that training of remembering like, okay, we have this fallback, it's recognize, confirm, recover, recognize that you're in this situation. And then, you know, you recognize that you confirm it, actually looking at the round dials, the things inside the cockpit, uh, and then recover from that, you know, take the appropriate action. And uh, it was a really scary moment. It was kind of one of those things that like, you think it's not going to happen to you and then it does and it's just that reminder to constantly be alert and aware and learning um but i also like i look back on that from a kind of a chaos stage of being a leader and being a commander and i think in our life sometimes we face these challenges and at first like things are just we're they're disorienting you're like what is going on what are you know what's going on how do I fix this? What do I do? And it's like, just take that moment to kind of reflect and pause and recognize that you're in that situation and then get some confirmation from the people around you, you know, just, you know, get some help. You know, you, you may not have the round dials telling you what to do, but you have people, you have wingmen and teammates that can help and then taking the appropriate action, whatever that is, you know, the appropriate action for the situation that you're in. So I don't know. I just feel like there's so many, um, lessons that we learn in aviation that are applicable in our everyday lives you know keep helping us to remain calm under pressure to help us prioritize in really difficult moments and i think you know no matter how good you are how good you think you are in the airplane um it doesn't hurt to go back and, and chair fly and you know go back to the basics sometimes so i think there's just i think that's with life too you know you constantly have to be learning and growing and figuring out how to get better at the things that you're doing I love the phrase that you use of uh, you know, wiggle fingers and toes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that one is uh, that was that dates back from my very first uh, refueling in combat. And uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of pressure. Refueling is like maybe one of my least favorite things to do in the airplane <laughs> because it's just it's pressure and everybody's watching and and like if you don't do it right, everyone notices and sees. And if you really don't do it right, then it can you know have some negative consequences. So um, refueling, I, I remember, you know, we did it in training and you're like, okay, this sucks, but I, I still am good enough that I can get it done. And then it comes time for combat. And if you don't refuel, now you're talking about diverting or, you know, not completing the mission. Uh, and we were crossing um, from Kuwait going into Afghanistan. We probably had, I don't know, 
four, five, six airy feelings to do. And my very first one, I was just so nervous. I like my first mission going into combat and, you know, we're just outside of Iran. There's just a lot of things going on. And I remember, you know, pulling up the tankers in front of me. I mean, it's a beautiful blue sky day. Like there are no clouds, there's no weather. It's just beautiful. It's calm, you know, it's everything that you ask for in flying. The tanker's right out in front of me, like, I, this is not hard. And I just was still so nervous. And I remember just pulling up to the tanker and I calmly hear my flight lead just say, Casey, wiggle your fingers and toes because he knows that I am like, have this death grip on the stick. Like he can just sense that I am just nervous. And I just, you know, it's that little thing, you know, like when things are stressful, just wiggle your fingers and toes, take that deep breath and then like fall back on the training. And I had no problem refueling. It was fine. But, you know, in that moment I was nervous and it's just, you know, it's a reminder like in life and it, with people around you, sometimes you just got to take that deep breath, take a step back and, you know, you've got this. I love that. And and it's something that's definitely going to stick with me next time for like a hard IFR approach or something else that's a nerve wracking situation. I love that phrase of just thinking, okay, what are your fingers and toes? Just give, give it a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Rele release the death grip on the stick. <laughs> well, one of the hardest things for those of us that absolutely adore the A-10 and what it represents um, is the idea that for a very long time, for decades, it's been on the chopping block and now is seems to be kind of on the final chopping block that it's actually going to be going away. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, we're, we, we're in this kind of world where there's a war going on uh, over in Ukraine, and it's a different kind of war than people ever thought would happen uh, in, in terms of close combat, trench warfare, tanks, a lot of close, a lot of ground troops. Tell me about what your thoughts are on the idea that this close air support that the A-10 was built for and built around and... Uh, and yet it, 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 you know, probably won't be there in the future. Um, and what it would mean, I guess, in, in these types of situations. Yeah, well, it's sad to me a little bit because I do see the writing on the wall. I think, you know, the Air Force has wanted to get rid of the A-10 for quite some time now. Um, and it's been um, turned down, I guess, is the, the right way to put it, in Congress. Um, and this year was the first time that we're seeing in the uh, NDAA, uh, the the approval to retire some A-10s. So we, I think it was, we started with 281 this year, we'll be down to 260. Um, and I, it's, I think it is sadly is coming. And I think the reason for that, I mean, the Air Force is very focused on the high-end threat, the peer to near peer competitor, think Russia, China, um, high-end threat, and they don't see a place for the A-10, that, it need, that they're looking for aircraft that are multi-role that can operate in a contested environment. Um, I think for me, as I look at this, I think the most important thing is, do we have a platform, an airframe with pilots who will train for close air support? Um, we learned over the past 20 years with operations um, in many different locations that close air support was a critical mission. It was absolutely essential. It is our primary mission in the A-10, but other platforms, other weapon systems have picked that role up and they've been able to do it very well because they've trained to it. They've committed to it as like a mindset and a mission that it's important to them. To me, that is what needs to be carried on. So, you know, 
obviously, I, I'm totally biased. I think the A-10 should, should stick around. I mean, I think it's by far the best airplane to do close air support. That aside, I recognize that right now we are moving away from the A-10. And I think um, within the next five to six years, unless something drastic happens, that we will see the, the end of an era, the end of the A-10, um, which is still sad. Um, but my hope, um, and I know that hope is not a course of action, but I, I would hope that the A-10 pilots, the young A-10 pilots, the people that have come after me, the, the pilots that have been trained in close air support as they move to these other weapon systems will keep that mindset and keep that culture that close air support is important. But it has to be part of, of their training. You know, it, it can't be this, oh, it's just a backup thing that we might have to do sometime. You have to stay current in it. You have to train with the ground troops. Um, and so that, that is my main concern, is that we continue that mindset, we continue that focus, and we make it a requirement. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, it's just, uh, it is sad for me because I, I clearly have a, a close bond with the airplane. I mean, the airplane saved my life. I'm not sure if I was flying any other airplane that my situation would have turned out the same way. I mean, I think it's just, it's an incredible airplane. It does incredibly well at its mission. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see it last a little bit on, longer. But um, if it doesn't, then we need the pilots that have a, a close air support focused mindset. It's it's interesting to put it that way because it is it, you're certainly correct. It is not about the aircraft as as long as aircrafts air, individual aircraft can be around. None of them are around forever, and it, it's about the mission. Yeah. And and if the mission is valued and taught and really embraced, that the next aircraft that's going to fill the role is the right aircraft for the role, and that people are trained to do it. Yeah, it, that's absolutely it. And so I, I hope we've done our job as, uh, you know, as, as instructors in the airplane teaching the next generation kind of that, not just the tactics, techniques, and procedures of close air support, but the, the bond and the, the responsibility as an A-10 pilot to support our troops on the ground and that connection that we feel with our ground troops. And I hope they can carry that with them into the whatever platform comes next. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much. I want to make sure that people uh, out there uh, are able to check it out. Uh, be sure to go out. You can find this on, on Amazon. Uh, you can search for Casey Campbell and uh, A A10. You'll find it on her website, other sources that are out there. But the book is Flying in the Face of Fear, um, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. It's absolutely wonderful. And again, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live and share your stories. And I, I truly value your service. And I know many, many other people watching tonight do as well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, putting up with my contingency planning. There's a whole section about that in the book. I'm learning my lessons uh, still. <laughs> continue to learn them to this day. <laughs> no worries. Have a wonderful evening, Casey. All right. Thanks. You too. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next week, Tuesday, October 10th, with the amazing Bert Rutan, who completely revolutionized home-built aircraft as well as all so many other things, taking canard aircraft and making them something that it, it, we see on a regular basis, that we understand, and, and everything that he was able to do and continues to do 
uh, in his role. Uh, it, it's truly wonderful, and I'm looking forward to that show. So again, next Tuesday, uh, October 10th, 8 p.m. Eastern time, as always, Bert Rutan will be with us. We're then off for NBAA and back on Tuesday, October 24th, with Technum Aircraft Vice President David Copeland. I'll tell you, we spent some time with those aircraft out at AirVenture, and it is truly something you need to understand, learn about, and see what they are doing. It's going to be a lot of fun, and that is Tuesday, October 24th. Until next time, again, thank you so much for everything that you do to support General Aviation, and I wish you all blue skies.